A lot of times, an entrepreneur's journey goes something like this. You're working a job, you want to start a business, maybe you side hustle for a bit, then quit that job. And then you work on that one business exclusively, maybe until you retire or die. But that definitely wasn't the case for Scott Blackwell, owner and distiller of Highwire Distilling Company in Charleston, South Carolina. Today's part one of our conversation. It's his road to distilling via a number of other business ventures. This is Chris Spear, and you're listening to Chefs Without Restaurants, the show where I speak with culinary entrepreneurs and people working in the food and beverage industry outside of a traditional restaurant setting. I have 31 years of working in kitchens, but not restaurants, and currently run a personal chef business throwing dinner parties in the Washington, D.C. area. And before I get too far here, I want to say that this is a conversation with Scott, but it's also a business very much run with his wife, Anne. I think I actually met her first, to be honest. And as I alluded to earlier, Scott's journey didn't take him right to distilling. And this conversation isn't actually about distilling at all. Scott's been a Ben & Jerry's distributor, owned a coffee roaster and bakery, and started a line of frozen doughs. I found his story to be so interesting, and thought that food and beverage entrepreneurs would really enjoy it. But I also realized that some people just want to hear about the distillery business and making whiskey, so I cut this episode into two parts. This part will take you right up to the point of when he starts that leg of his entrepreneurial journey. Part two, The Distilling Story, will be released next week. And a bit of podcast housekeeping here. I recently posted online that I'm looking for guests to be on this show. I was overwhelmed to have more than 200 inquiries in a matter of days. If one of them was you and you haven't heard back, I want to let you know that I'm working through them, and I hope to be in touch very soon. And if you're listening and think that you have a good story to tell feel free to reach out on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants or email me at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. As always, thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Are you a personal chef looking for support and growth opportunities? Look no further than the United States Personal Chef Association. With a thousand members across the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides liability insurance, certification, lead generation, and more. Consumers can trust that their meal experience is insured and supported by USPCA. Apply now for USPCA membership and save $75 on premier, provisional, preparatory, and corporate memberships, as well as $25 on student memberships by using code HAPPYNEWYEAR24 at USPCA.com forward slash join. Plus, Higher Chef subscriptions are available to list your personal chef business at HigherChef.com. To learn more about membership, advertising, or partnership opportunities, call Angela at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com. Hey, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. For our listeners who don't know, Scott he made the world's largest cookie. Isn't that right? That's what you're known for, right? Uh, the world's largest cookie? <clears throat> yes, that will be on my on my tombstone, I think. Uh, yeah, no, uh, my wife, Anne, uh, does not like to talk about that very much. It was, a, it was, a, it was, and I won't go into, you know, all the gory details, but it was, it, it was a fun, cool event, but it was also very hard and had a, had a lot of uh, theater you know, at the la- especially at that last few hours. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> we still hold that record. Twenty twenty years this this year uh, will have held that record. So it's our big anniversary this May. 
I know every year you post it up on social media. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a feat, and you know, I think the people that were there, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you know, it sounds silly and all that, but ultimately it was a, it was a thing like, you know, I don't know, climbing a a, a big mountain, maybe not Everest, but one of the other big ones around the world. And it was a huge undertaking, no pun intended, but, um, we, you know, it was, a the, the previous record was 24,000 pounds and I think, uh, 80 feet or 79 feet or something like that. And we looked at it and said, well, if we're going to do 81 feet or whatever, why don't we just do a hundred, you know? And, um, you know, if we get that big, you know, <laughs> what's 20 more feet and we mismeasured. So we actually ended up with 102 foot and 40,000 pounds. Uh, Overachiever. So, so yes, it was, you know, so I'm throwing out the, the challenge. Somebody's, you know, go and do something, but don't do a hundred and three feet do you know 150 feet or something do something real you know (laughs) yeah well i thought that would be a fun way to start the show actually you are the owner distiller of high wire distilling company down in charleston south carolina which you run with your wife ann Um, and i've often said it's my favorite distillery in the country i don't know when i found you guys i mean you know i've been down to charleston a bunch my sister-in-law lived down there for over a decade so that's how i got to know you and since you're my favorite, I wanted to have you on the show and kind of talk about what you're doing down there. That's awesome. No, I think it was pretty early on. I think you were one of the early adopters. I think it probably was in the first couple of years, to be honest. Well, I think it was through social media. I don't know. Was it you or Anne? Like who was doing like the Instagram? It's probably even Twitter at the time, right? Like I feel like the early days of social media where I was just connecting with all these people and I was really interested in Charleston, you know, like Sean Brock and all those guys. And I think I just was even following you on social media before I even came down that first time. It was probably a couple of years just talking to you guys. Yeah, probably would have been Ann uh, doing most of the social media. I did a little bit. I would take a picture and think it was cool and throw it up on Instagram or on Facebook or something or post an article. But she is a much better writer and uh, her posts are a little bit more... And it's so much more in-depth now. I mean, thinking about like even a decade ago, what we were putting out now, it's like a whole job. I mean, it is a job. Like there are people who do just social media. That's their whole thing. But I guess kind of like going back to the cookie and the baking and everything, before you had the distillery, you were doing other things in the food world prior to distilling. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like your background in culinary and pastry and how it led into distilling? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's pertinent to kind of how we ended up in the business. Well, you know, it's sort of pertinent into the, how we ended up in this business, but also pertinent to our approach to this current business. And, um, you know, I, I worked just like a lot of young, you know, teenage kids in a kitchen. Uh, my first job was washing dishes, uh, at a Greek restaurant, you know, a hamburger joint. And then from there, I, ended up with, um, you know, jobs through, you know, through some fast food chains, et cetera, Chick-fil-A, places like that. And, um, you know, it was kind of where I could get a job at that point, you know, young guys, you know, weren't, you know, they, you, know you either cut grass or you worked at a restaurant, it felt like. And I ended up going to school and about midway through school, I proclaimed that, you know, after I get out of college, I'm never going to work in the food business again. 
you know, and famous last words, you know, that's all I've ever done. So while I was in school uh, to make extra money, I started making desserts out of my apartment. So I was a chef without a restaurant. Uh, so it, it we call that up- cottage baking now, don't we? <laughs> yeah, illegal cottage baking. <laughs> so I was under the radar. It was just to me, it was not really a business. It was like cutting grass or something like that. I just, you know, made pies and, you know, pretty simple stuff. But in those days, I, I was all about um, real ingredients. So, you know, like key lime pie I made had real key limes in it. It didn't have bottled juice. It didn't have, you know, I was actually squeezing the limes and making the crust with butter and stuff like that. And in those days, this would have been in the eighties. It was all about like kind of cool whip type desserts. It was about, you know, just big and sugary and not really a lot of what I would call real flavor. It was just sweet. And I love chocolate. So I quickly got into the chocolate pie and cake business. And before I knew it, I was making a fair amount of money and I was watching this show called Growing a Business on PBS. It was hosted by a guy named Paul Hawken, uh, who started Smith and Hawken. And I saw these two guys from Vermont that had an ice cream company and they were making ice cream that was very similar to how I was approaching my pies. So I thought, oh, cool. I ought to call these guys and see how they did it. You know, maybe I'll do this instead of getting a real job and um, called up to Vermont and ended up uh, asking for Ben or Jerry. And um, that woman laughed and said, you know, uh, who is this? And, you know, basically I didn't get to talk to Ben or Jerry, but it led me to uh, eventually going to Vermont. They invited me up there. I met Jerry down here um, in in South Carolina and ended up going up to Vermont and um, became uh, the ninth distributor in the country for those guys. So I had no idea. I've never heard the story before. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I was 21 and I had no money, no, you know, it was a total fluke. And, uh, at that point, Ben and Jerry's was not a big company, but it was that distribution and that packaged product and the marketing and the social con- you know, socially conscious approach to business you know it was Tom's of uh, Maine and Anita Roddick from Body Shop and all those early guys and I just really thought that was cool to have a business and make a positive impact on your community you know and have fun doing it and make something that tastes good and and really a simple approach so the seeds were planted at that point and you know long story short I ended up selling part of that business because I didn't have money and I needed cash to run the business. And I took in investors and sold about three quarters of the business off and really just figured out that I was just working for other people. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I want to work for myself. So I jumped out and a friend of mine um, was, uh, had, you know, working in a fairly large corporation asked me if I could do breakfast uh, for their meetings and you know it was like quick breads so I was doing muffins and things of that nature uh, and then I had met the Green Mountain Coffee guys when I was up in Waterbury so I got interested in coffee and um, started making these desserts and then uh, and she said could you do lunches and this was there again out of my apartment by this point I'm back in my apartment 
and um, I uh, made these desserts and sandwiches and stuff like that. And then I thought, shit, if I'm going to do this, I may as well get legal and open up a brick and mortar place. So I found this old dumpy building in downtown Columbia behind the state house next to the university that had been a Kinko's and um, thought, you know, I'll never open up the front door. I'll just do all this out the back. But then I thought, well, shoot, there's the state houses right here in the university. I may as well open up the door and see if anybody comes in. And I think I was 24 at this point. And I um, did all the renovations myself, sanded the floors, etc. This was in the era where you could get away with a lot of that type of stuff. And it was just a sandwich and soup and salad place. So, you know, I created, you know, and I uh, had to come up with a name because the fire marshal basically inspected me and said, that's all great. You look great, but you have to have a name out front. You need, you know, what's the name of your business? And I was like, I was just going to open up without one. <laughs> it was a total, you know, something you do when you're 24. Yeah. You know? Not many 24 year olds start their own business like this. <laughs> so I got the dictionary out and looked through the vowels because I felt like, you know, a name with a vowel, you know, just start there. And I got to the eyes and I saw the word immaculate and I started laughing, had this idea of immaculate consumption. And so that's what the restaurant is, is still called. It's there. It's been there 33 years now. And uh, my manager bought it. He still owns it. But I opened up and there was a line out the door, you know, I mean, it was obviously a success, but I, you know, it, when I owned that business, I got really interested in, I was interested in coffee, but I went out, I, I'd seen a show on espresso and I said, I want to learn more about that. So I flew out to Seattle and went to a coffee show and all these, you know, super geeky guys and gals were a latte art and all this, you know, fanatical level of, uh, attention to detail with coffee and all about the varietals. And it was this opened up this whole world to me. And I just thought it was sort of cool. So long story short, I ended up buying a roaster while I was out there and um, delivered back to South Carolina and became the first coffee roaster in South Carolina in my basement at the restaurant. So opened up a little espresso bar and then, you know, my baked good stuff was you know, starting to get better. I was starting to add scones and biscotti and stuff like that. And, but after about nine years of running that restaurant and coffee shop, I just started thinking, I really want to get back to this package thing again. So that's where the, the bakery was born, Immaculate Baking, uh, which was the business previous to this and, and the most successful business. So, you know, I made cookies and coffee wholesale and in those days you know it was like the days of barnes and noble and books a million and all these stores they had coffee shops in them so every little mom and pop bookstore had a coffee little coffee bar or whatever or maybe you had a hair salon or whatever you know record store so i ended up selling to a lot of these guys and they loved my cookies and stuff but the problem was stales so i started making dough and freezing it and delivering them to dough. And then they could just bake off in their store in a little small oven what they wanted for that day. You know, and that way they basically cut down their stales. They had more of a great smell in the building and they had a wow kind of 
experience for their for their customers because it was a fresh cookie or scone or whatever. And um, that was where a little light bulb went on. Uh, and, and so eventually uh, I you know sold the restaurant to my manager, had the coffee in the bakery. He didn't want the coffee roasting operation, so I broke that out. And, you know, it was kind of confusing. I'd go to trade shows and people were like, coffee bakery, huh? What, what are you? <laughs> are you a bakery or are you coffee roast? But they seem like they naturally go together. Like I see them as together. People really didn't see that. Well, for wholesale, they didn't, they couldn't, I mean, it's really, it was like, you know, like, which is better? And I'm like, they're both great. <laughs> but, you know, it was small. I was doing like 400 grand a year or something like that. It was not a big business. So I, I had a guy, a local guy, sold the coffee roasting operation to down in Spartanburg. And, it, and I had broken it off and, tr- you know, kind of come up with a separate name because I had Immaculate Consumption Coffee Roasters, but then I had Little River Roasting. Little River is this trail that runs up through, you know, up in that area, up in the foothills. And so I called it Little River Roasting. And Little River Trading was the, was the bakery side of things. So I ended up selling that Little River brand to this guy in Spartanburg, and he still owns it. Um, and that is where Ann and I met Ann worked for him. And so with the bakery, I was starting to see potential with like the fancy food show in New York and San Francisco. And then of course, Whole Foods, the natural food world, you know, all the bread and circuses up in the Northeast, which eventually became Whole Foods. And it's been ages since I've heard of bread and circus. We used to have them because I'm from Massachusetts and that's what we had. And I remember the transition over from when my bread and circus in Providence, Rhode Island switched over to a Whole Foods. That was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and that's how they grew so quickly. They acquired regional brands and, you know, that's how they went public to do that. And uh, it was, it was really interesting in those days to deal with those folks and to, sort of have people that appreciated a product that was made with good ingredients. And it was a perfect world, you know, to be in at that point. And I was in the business right at the right time doing the right thing. So organic had been a thing, but it was more of associated with like healthy tastes like cardboard kind of food. And then it was starting to become more trendy and, you know, whole foods, you know, made it sexier. So, I was able to ride in on that wave and uh, we went national with Whole Foods um, and we became the number one uh, natural and organic place and bake cookie dough. So, you know, just think Pillsbury and Nestle. And then eventually launched rolls in those tubes, you know, the the Wapums or whatever people call them. You Where know. you like push down with your thumbs and it like pops open kind of thing. Exactly. So. We were the number one in the natural food side, of course, with that. So we had biscuits. We just went down the data. We went biscuits, cinnamon rolls, crescent rolls. One thing I learned is that you didn't have to have the most incredible product. You had to just have consistency and you had to have distribution and you had to, you know, be able to deliver uh, the product at a decent price. And, you know, you know, so it was all around the word value and, that business around distribution, especially in data, taught me and Ann 
about sort of paying attention to the market. So it's like a lot of people just start a business and they go, oh, I make great stuff and my neighbors all love it. I should start a business. You know, I should, you know, this is my case, you know, my focus group and why, you know, they all tell me I should, you know, package these things, you know, and it's like, yeah, but you know, you've, you've got too much ingredient cost or you've got, you know, the scalability and, you know, there's just a lot of that. I I have these conversations a lot with, with, you know, entrepreneurs or people that want to, especially chefs that want to break out and have their, the personal chef thing, like, oh, my family says I'm a great cook and all my neighbors love it and I cook for barbecues. It's like, yeah, but do you know anything about business? Like <laughs> actually like running the number, like have you done any kind of business work? Like do you know what it's like to just start a business right. cooking no. for people? You right. Know? I mean, you can you can do it, but the amount of people who just think they're just going to go out there with no business experience and start a successful business like that. Yeah, yeah. So so I learned a ton and we, we were lucky enough that that bakery was in my garage when I moved it, you know, to the mountains of North Carolina and the coffee roasting was down the street, sold the coffee roasting off and moved into a little bit bigger building with the bakery and automated a little bit and then moved into a bigger building um, and automated even more. And then really we were scaling so quickly, you know, I thought, you know, I'll never co-pack. I would never let somebody else make my product. But when I realized, A, they could do it better than I could, and I could also be super nimble and just focus on one thing, which was growing my business, you know, that's what we ended up doing. So we ended up outsourcing all of our production to dough manufacturers. So we, we set up an old Sarah Lee plant outside of St. Louis and the stuff I learned with all that, you know, it was just mind boggling. And we did it in like, you know, 12 years and we sold that business. We had a couple of suitors, um, Annie's, the homegrown macaroni and cheese folks had gone public and they were looking for acquisitions and then General Mills. And, uh, you know, we had a few other tire kickers, but ultimately we sold the business to General Mills in uh, December 31st of, of 2012. And um, Ann and I signed a lease down in Charleston, had already signed a lease provisional around us selling the business. And so once we sold that business, we, we picked up and we were in Charleston February 1 and we started work on the current business. So I knew that took... A long time. Every story doesn't take that long. So that's, it's great because like, it's like a whole nother story. It's like a, a lesson on business building. And I don't know anyone who, you know, it's serial entrepreneurship. It sounds like, you know, to have all that experience. It wasn't just like I was working a nine to five and then I started distillery. It's like, I started a business. I started a business. I started a business yeah, uh, and so forth. And I think that's really great because so many of our listeners are uh, entrepreneurs, people looking to start businesses. I didn't know almost any of that story. Um, I knew about the cookies because you hooked me up with an oven that you used to use at Rachel's, <laughs> which I still use. It's an amazing oven. I take it to houses. Like one of my questionnaires for my customers is how many ovens do you have? And if they say one, I throw that oven in the van and I take it and it's great. It, it You can put it on any countertop there and I've got an extra oven that can, you know, do three quarter pans in there. So yeah, it's served yeah, me well cool. and I still I forgot use about it. that. Yeah. Those had, we had multiples of those with the bakery and, those little ovens are workhorses. Yeah, they uh, are. I tell anyone, if you're looking for one, if you can find something like that, it's so worth it. So totally appreciate that. 
you're still here? The podcast's over. If you are indeed still here, thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. I'd love to direct you to one place, and that's chefswithoutrestaurants.org. From there, you'll be able to join our email newsletter, get connected in our free Facebook group, and join our personal chef, catering, and food truck database so I can help get you more job leads. And you'll also find a link to our sponsor page, where you'll find products and services I love. You pay nothing additional to use these links, but I may get a small commission, which helps keep the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast and organization running. You might even get a discount for using some of these links. As always, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants or send me an email at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.